Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. In today's episode, we welcome back autistic film journalist Lillian Crawford for her second appearance as a special guest to discuss the 1994 romantic comedy crime drama Chunking Express, directed by Wong Kar Wai. Joining Lillian are regular hosts John James Laidlow, David Hartley and Janet Harbord. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Uh, my name is David Hartley, and I will apologise immediately because I do have a little bit of a cold. So if I suddenly break off into some into a coughing fit, then you then you know why. But hopefully, I'll be able to hold it together. I might just be a bit growlier than usual. Uh, but anyway, that's the way it is. Uh, yes, we're all here again together to uh, record an episode all about um, the 1994 film Chunking Express, directed by Wong Kar Wai. Uh, but before we get to that, I'm going to introduce the, my co-hosts for today. So we have uh, Professor Janet Harbord. Janet, um, do you like pineapple? <laughs> I love pineapple and I'm obsessed with, with Subway Dates too, yep. Excellent. Um, we also have uh, John James Laidlow. John James, do you like pineapple? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> I, I like pineapple juice more. And we're also delighted to be welcoming back uh, Lillian Crawford, who was uh, here with us for our Amelie episode. Uh, welcome back, Lillian. It's lovely to have you. And do you like pineapple? I do. Not tinned pineapple so much as fresh pineapple, though. Um, the sell-by-day issue is frightening. <laughs> it is indeed. Um, that might be a little bit bizarre to those of uh, anyone who's listening that hasn't seen Chunking Express, but I assure you that's very much part of Chunking Express. Um, and just for the record, I, I do like pineapple as well. Um, it's, it's delicious. Okay, so yes, today we are discussing Chunking Express. This has been um, suggested by Janet, so I am now going to hand over to Janet, who is going to give us a bit of an overview of the film and a bit of an introduction into why we're thinking about this film from the autistic point of view. Janet. Thanks, David. Yes, I should I should add the caveat that uh, never put pineapple on a pizza. Um, so there's a clause to my love of pineapple. Um, yes, this is Von Kawai's fourth film, uh, as you say, shot in 1994 uh, by his regular cinematographer, Christopher Doyle. Um, it's a very sumptuous, saturated uh, film. There's a lot of handheld camera, um, there are scenes shot in confined spaces. Uh, we never have an overview of the city. We're immersed in the alleyways and, and very confined spaces from the beginning. Um, there is also uh, a, a, an ongoing effect of slow motion in a number of sequences that we have where a character sort of drops out of time in this very ponderous state. Um, and perhaps most famously for this film is an eclectic soundtrack um, drawing on music from 
a range of different sources, and this is repeated through the film. Um, in terms of plot, it's a non-linear story that's told in two parts. Each part focuses on a cop and on a woman. In the first story, the cop, 223, uh, as we know him, uh, is heartbroken and wanders the city buying tins of pineapple that expire on the 1st of May, um, which is, for him, a way of testing whether uh, he, he has actually lost this woman. If she hasn't returned by then, it's truly over. She is also called May. Uh, meanwhile, in the same streets, the woman in a blonde wig, uh, who's a drug runner, is, is part of a deal that goes wrong, and they end up in the same bar. In the second story, we meet a different but equally heartbroken cop, 663, um, who stops at a food store where a young woman works and she likes him, but he is oblivious to it. Um, and the story unfolds of this sort of uh, love story from a distance. Um, okay, so uh, it has the soundtrack of California Dreaming running through it by the mamas and papas. There's also a bar by that name and the, uh, the real California is a place that's referenced in the second part of the film when the woman eventually flies there. So there's lots of doubling and repetition in the film, and this is the one of the reasons I've chosen it. Um, I'm neurotypical, as far as that really exists, um, but it's a film in which I see my autistic identified self quite strongly, by which I mean it's a film of many repetitions and doubles um, and strong interests. It's a film that that sort of elicited from me a very um, repetitious uh, relationship. I watched it very many times over a, a couple of years. Um, it's a film in which romantic relationships are quite queer, and I think neuroqueer too. Um, they're not straightforward in any sense. They're characterised by movements of towards and away. Um, desire and attraction have never seemed straightforward to me and this is the fate of the characters in Chunking Express. Uh, the, the, what they feel for each other is mediated by, by things. Um, it's tentative, it's often thwarted and ultimately uh, their attraction is open-ended. We never, we never get to know what, what becomes of them and what they feel for each other. Um, Another aspect of its relationship to autism for me is, is objects. We've, we've come across this when we've discussed Amelie, when we've discussed um, Varda's film, um, The Gleaners. And I think in this film, objects play a sort of character role. People become absorbed in them. Um, they're significant. They cause things to happen. Um, and we... We also get to see how they're made. We get to see how shoes are made for the smugglers. We get shoes that are being cleaned for the woman in the first story. We also get characters talking to a soap, um, to a dishcloth, to a soft toy. Um, lots of examples that, that you could go on giving, and I'm sure people will. Um, objects have a real force in the world, and, and there's an attention to the life form of objects and their meaning. And I think this, this for me, is... is is the most interesting aspect of the film. Um, finally, there's a film set in a very dense urban location in Hong Kong City. Um, as I was saying at the beginning, it's, it's, we never get an overview, an establishing shot. It's a series of networks and relationships that are lived pretty close up. Um, we're always in the thick of it. Space is a feeling rather than a meaningful geography. Um, and this, this, again, seems to me to characterise a lot of our discussion about being in, in 
sort of wells of feeling rather than in sort of rationalised spaces of, of the city and of thought that is uh, can just be expressed directly and, and the world correlates to that. This is a film that puts us completely somewhere else in a, in a, in a set of feelings and spaces that are overlapping. Yeah, thanks, Janet. That's a really interesting um, introduction of like a lot of what you were saying there. Um, and it sort of chimes with a lot of my own thoughts on this film. I, my own history with this film is that like I always cite it as one of my top 10 films of all time. I, I just I just adore it. And I came across it first um, actually when I was doing film studies uh, A-level way back in the kind of mid 2000s. And at a time, I think, when the, when film studies as an A-level was still uh, quite a new pursuit. And for some reason, my college in Preston, I don't know why, but they chose to do film studies. And I took it up. And this was one of the films that we watched, this this alongside um, Fallen Angels, which is another of Ron Carwise's films from around a similar time. And I was completely besotted by it and beguiled by it. I thought this is the most unusual film, but also wonderful and coolest film I'd, I'd think I'd ever seen. Um, I thought it was wonderful, um, but I've never really considered it from the point of view of autism before. Um, although I've I've watched the film many many times, and it and it's fascinating. And uh, I think a lot of what you were saying there certainly about kind of the life of objects and um, the sense of yeah, sort of, sort of neuro queerness in terms of how the relationships between these characters play out, and not just the romantic relationships, but even the sort of like accidental relationships there's the the way in which those two the two stories in the film sort of transition is uh the the first cop bumps into Faye who's the who is the female in the second story and he says something along the lines of at our closest point we are like 0 0.1 0.01 centimeters apart from each other or something and that signals the kind of turn from the first story to the second story it's almost like he's passing on the bat on to to the second story and there's something there's something quite neurodivergent about that as a structure for storytelling it feels in some way in a way that I can't really quite put my finger on but it's it's unusual and it's playful and it's um, to do with the kind of chaos of life, really, and, and the, the people we just happen to bump into and happen to get involved with, um, even in passing. Um, and, yeah, there's something very thrilling and exciting about that. And there's, there was when I first watched it, and there still is when I, when I rewatch this film. And there's also, like, one of the things I love about rewatching this film is um, noticing when the characters from the second story appear very briefly in the first story you see them in the background or you see um you see the cop from the second story sort of like overlooking the streets and uh you glimpse Faye um in her flight attendant uniform I think w walking past at one point you see her buying the big stuffed toy that she uses later on like little moments like that where it's there's a there's a sense that you're right in the depths of the energy of the city of of in the Hong Kong city lost in the in the crowds um but also this this beautiful pinpointing of all these different people that you just sort of see as almost as if you're just passing them by and you see them in the crowd um and there's something magical about that really yeah but anyway i, I mean i think i've got a lot to say about this film as well so i'll, I'll shut up for now and let others speak but it's a it's a great film i was just going to say on talking about the specificity of like those meetings and the, the, the details like the sell-by dates and 
um, the distance between people. Um, it's It was interesting watching this, having discussed Amelie last time, which is a film where its entire plot is sort of driven by these these specificities of when people meet, when people are born, when they're conceived, that kind of thing. And how sort of there are these butterfly effects, how one one thing happening at one time sort of leads on to um something else and i think i think you're right in saying that there is a sort of that's quite a neurodivergent way of looking at the world that we that there is a focus sort of on these things rather than just sort of accepting it the way it is there is a more there is a more sort of analytical interest in in those moments and in those those um those interactions between people um and I think that's what works so well about this film is that it's only two storylines. A lot of, a lot of films would take this as sort of, you know, it's about the interactions between people and chance meetings in Hong Kong and how people sort of bump into each other. You could quite easily do like a Love Actually kind of approach and have like twelve different storylines where different couples are bumping into each other and meeting, and it would just get so confused in its own sort of um, attempts to, to form an overlap and sort of tie itself in knots um, in a way that Richard Curtis thinks is very clever. Sorry, I, I, <laughs> I feel like I'm, be, I'm being sort of pushing this genre on Richard Curtis. It's not just him, but I think he has a lot to apologise for for sort of spawning the sort of Valentine's Days and New Year's Eves and... Um, movie 43s of this of 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 the industry and uh this is this is very much how you can do that um in a very nuanced and very beautiful way as you say it's not it nothing's ever stated explicitly and it's a film that does benefit from rewatching this was actually only <clears throat> only the second time i'd seen the film the first um i'd the the first one car wife film i'd seen was in the mood for love which i saw for the first time when I arrived at university. Um, and that's very much in my top 10 films. That's like an all time favorite for me. And that's that's also about sort of one meeting, but in a similar sense of sort of these, these sort of very tactile contacts and how people sort of bump into each other and how it can change the whole narrative through that. Um, and then I watched Chunking Express um, when the Institute of Contemporary Arts was showing the new restorations of all the films earlier this year, um, which are really interesting. So I, the first version I saw was the 4K restoration that Wong Kar Wai has done. Um, and in preparation for this podcast, I watched the original um, version. And it's really interesting how different the film looks in both of them, because it's not, it's not so much an issue of sort of I mean, the sound quality is slightly different, but um, with the restorations, it almost looks like, um, to put it crudely, it, it sort of looks like Wong Kar Wai has sort of dipped the celluloid in urine. It's like this real sort of yellowish hue to them. Um, so it was actually quite refreshing watching the original with sort of Christopher Doyle's original cinematography, which is very clear and sort of bright in a lot of ways. Um, so it was quite a different experience just just watching it and being in the spaces and in a world that doesn't... I suppose it's a similar sort of aesthetic to um, 
Jean-Pierre Genet, where everything's just sort of got this sort of greenish hue to it, um, which which I find quite nauseating. Whereas watching this, I felt this version, I felt much more sort of comforted by that. Um, but yeah, it's it's good that we're sort of we're talking about it this year when there's been a lot of sort of talk about Wong Kar Wai and 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 that season of restored versions of his films. Um, yeah, so thank you for <laughs> for asking me to to to, to watch it again because as you say, it's it's a film that sort of benefits from that rewatching. I don't I don't often rewatch films that I love because I don't want to tarnish them, but this is very much one of those films that I feel would actually benefit from being seen multiple times, um, as you were saying, Janet. Um, th- th- this is the first time I've seen the film, and I'm, I'm pretty sure I, I watched the Restoration, because it was the Criterion Collection 1 version, so um, I'd, be quite inter- I'd be quite interested to watch it again to see the differences, and also to see what David pointed out, that you can see... Um, the characters from the second story in the in the first story because obviously I completely missed that yeah so uh, I'd be quite interested to to watch it again to to try and you know spot spot the characters from the from the second story um it's quite interesting that that you're here again Lillian because that there are the the similarities between Amelie that we've already pointed out but also there's the um the character in the second story breaks into her love interest's flat and sort of um, moves stuff around, and that reminds me of Amelie, although it, it's it's for different reasons. I mean, Amelie's um, a bit more um, malicious, but but for what she sees as as, as a just reason. Um, yeah, I think you're right. There's definitely that sort of parallel between. And, and and again, it has that sort of specificity to it that there's there's a sort of there's a method to it um, that everything is sort of placed in a way that Amelie intends it to be placed. Whereas in in Chunking Express, Faye is sort of doing it for the sake of doing it because she doesn't know how to, or even we're not entirely clear on how she wants to interact with. Um, with COP663 that she tries to sort of um, articulate how she feels about him or her feelings in a very tangible way rather than sort of a vocalised one and one that minimises sort of actual contact um, in the same way that Amelie does um, in how, in her sort of romantic pursuit with, with Nino Um in that film, that there's this sort of laying little sort of hints and not traps, but like things that would sort of maybe make someone notice you. Um, but she's not aware of the fact that he's sort of interested in her anyway. Um, and that's something that's really quite quite beautiful in, in both storylines, I think, is that you have sort of someone who is coded as neurotypical sort of trying to engage with someone who is coded as neurodivergent and the charm of that and why that sort of um, inspires romantic interest in them and and, and why um, 
relationships between people um, where people where a person is neurotypical and someone is neurodivergent sort of how those relationships work and how they might take time to initiate um which i think this film does um very well i mean that's something that i think i wanted to sort of throw open to discussion is like who are the sort of neurodivergent characters in this film? Who who are the neurotypical ones? Because I sort of read it that the women are coded as the neurodivergent characters. But um, yeah, I think it, I think it was interesting when when you suggested this film because my mind immediately went to Faye because she's she's perhaps more obviously neurodivergent. But I think that um, the 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 woman in the blonde wig that Bridget Lynn plays in the first part also has some of the um, that coding as well. Yeah, I, I, I'm the same, Lillian. As soon as I thought, started thinking about the characters in this film in the context of neurodivergence or autism, um, Faye was an obvious choice, and then and then the the Bridget Lynn character, the the woman in the wig, especially when she says, you know, that she wears a raincoat and sunglasses at the same time in order in order to. Um, account for whatever kind of weather that um, that might happen that day and there was something kind of sweet sort of sweetly neurodivergent about that in, in a way but then interestingly in watching watching it the other day I started to think about the men a little bit more and I started to think about the, the two cops particularly the cop in the first story um I'm just looking up what his number is so that we get this 223 223 223 that's right um there's something about his um, the the logic that he places upon the pineapple chunks and the expiration dates that I found to be quite um, neurodivergent. He, you know, the the idea is that he's yeah he's been dumped by his former girlfriend whose name was May. He on April Fool's Day, um, which he makes note of. And therefore, he's given himself a month to get over this situation. And in doing so, he's buying tins of pineapple chunks that have got the expiration date of, of the 1st of May, which is also his birthday. And there's something, there was something really neat about the, I just, something about the way he finds the, that pattern, I guess, in amongst things that are all, we might consider to be frivolous or meaningless. Um, or, or the, where there is no sort of pattern, but he sort of creates this own pattern for himself to to understand his the change that has uh, has happened in his life, which is now he's gone from having a girlfriend to being single, and how he therefore contemplates that. And there's some, and that is kind of echoed by the second cop in the second section as well, who is one of the one of the things that I think is really nice about what you were just talking about in terms of Faye going to his apartment and changing things around is that one thing I noticed from rewatching it this time is that he's once he's realized what Faye's doing and that she has been in his apartment in fact he's caught her there and he's understood that she's been in there and cleaning things up there isn't a moment where he's sort of like going around the flat annoyed by what she's done but he at that point starts to pick up the soap and go oh, you've put on weight, or, or he notices the, the change in the flannel that she's done, or the change in the teddy bear, and he's still talking to these objects. He's still, he's still giving these objects a life, even though he knows, he should know by this point, that, that it's Faye that's changed all these things for him. And it's almost as if he's now, by doing that, he's sort of accepting this, 
uh, yeah, this kind of new neurodivergent, neuroqueer relationship that is now forming with him and him and Faye. So it's sort of fascinating, like, yeah, in some ways, the men, the two cops are the kind of more neurotypical, but they, they still also have a neurodivergence about them and in the, in, in the ways that they go about things and the patterns that they find in, the, in their lives, I suppose. But it's an interesting question. Um, it's, it's quite interesting that um, you, you, um, you both related to the characters that way because I, I saw the men just as neurodivergent as, as, as their counterparts, the women, in, the, in both stories. And, you know, the, the, the ritual of the, um, of the cans and the, and, um, the, the talking to the objects that you've mentioned, the not opening the letter... Um, I don't know, it all, it all felt kind of um, neurodivergent in a way to me. Like, they've, they've all made their own sort of rules and, and rituals. And, and um, there's, there's this quote here that I found in an article with um, an interview with Wong Kar Wai um, about Chunking Express. Um, and he said that, Oh, no, wait, he doesn't say this, but the, the interviewee does. Says all of his characters are afflicted by the same problems of loneliness, insecurity, and inability to commit. It's just that the ones in Chunking Express have found ways to cope, which the others haven't. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I thought, I mean, maybe it's impossible to tell as well who, who's neurodivergent and who's not. Maybe none of them are, maybe all of them are. But it, it, definitely I got a vibe from all of them. What, what do people think about the doubling in the film? Because this is a quite a strong feature, and the more you think about it, the more there are doubles. There are, for a start, there are two cops. There, it, by the end, there are two air stewards. Um, along the course uh, of the film, there are the, the as we've already mentioned, two different California dreaming, two Cal- Californias in there. Um, I'm sure there are more. Um, and then the, the whole film is in two parts. So there's something about it that is it about mirroring? Is it about imitation? Um, I, I couldn't quite work out what what that part of the film was doing. It it asks us to make connections. Does it draw us into that relationship with the film that the characters have to things that we're trying to work out? Kind of quite spurious, tentative connections between things and ask what are the relationships in the same way that we see people pondering about tins or bars of soap, perhaps. Yeah, I I think that that ties into what I was sort of saying about how you don't, it doesn't need to have many more storylines or threads in it, that it's enough to sort of show a mirror image to express the universality of what these characters are going through and the fact that it can be relatable not just to these characters in Hong Kong there may be hundreds of relationships that formed in a similar way but beyond that to a sort of universal cinema almost where we can all sort of identify on some level with the loneliness that these characters experience and the joys of of sort of finding ways, as you said, to sort of break out of it or or to cope. Um, that when you hold a mirror up to a mirror, it sort of 
goes up, the image repeats itself ad infinitum. And I feel like you, that's what sort of all of Wong Kar Wai's films do. Well, most of them. There, there are a few outliers like Ashes of Time or The Grandmaster, which are completely different. But that's certainly sort of his romantic films, stuff like Fallen Angels, um, uh, Days of Being Wild, those as tears go by and mood for love they're all they're all doing have these sort of similar plot lines where as 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 you said john james that they they all have these characters as sort of lonely and a lot of them end very sort of bleakly and chunking expresses one where there is a sort of happiness to the endings at least of the second part of the story that there is sort of comfort these two characters taking each other and certainly of how COP663 sort of facilitates Faye's neurodivergence and how he sort of does everything he can to make her as comfortable as possible. As you said, like when, um, when, when he discovers her at the apartment, he doesn't freak out or shout at her or get cross. He invites her in, he massages her leg and he puts on her favorite song um, and, and plays California Dreaming because he knows that that sort of creates an atmosphere of comfort for her. Um, and I think that that's something that I definitely can relate to. Um, that sometimes I will, I will, I have like certain songs that I will just listen to over and over and over again because I like sort of the comforting feeling that they might they might provide for me. Um, or certainly in an atmosphere like that very busy place where the food store is, where there's a lot of noise, I would definitely have like headphones in or, or earplugs or something to sort of block that out because I'd find it really distressing. And I feel like that's what she's doing by playing that song so loudly in that environment is that she's sort of, it, it, it's sort of countering out overstimulation by having something to sort of, drown it out or singular to focus on um sorry that doesn't really answer your question about doubling i've sort of gone, gone off a bit but um i think that that's how sort of music plays out in this film um and there's even in the first part there's a sort of the jukebox with the cds that go around and it's this very beautiful entrancing image and it's how sort of in in these very busy spaces in a film at least where you have diegetic music um, that sort of plays out almost non-diegetically, where it's it's sort of brought to the fore, it does drown out all that background noise, so you can focus on one storyline or one um, conversation that's going on, um, especially in a, in the second half, as I said, in sort of the environment of that food store, and in the first part when they're in um, the bar. Um, which is the bottoms up bar, which I only just found out um, from Man with the Golden Gun, which is very strange. Um, so, yes, <laughs> there you go. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, uh, yeah, that, that's yeah. I know. I know exactly what you mean from Man with the Golden Gun. Um, uh, what I was going to say, I, I think that the the doubling and the the music in some ways uh, cross over as well. And and for me, the doubling affects and the way in which the music is repeatedly played, lots of the tracks are repeatedly played all, all the way through, um, 
adds to to the sort of dreamlike quality of this film. This, this film has a very dreamy quality, and it's not just a th- in a sort of throwaway way, but in a real kind of myst- almost quite magical, mystical kind of way. So the obviously she's singing California Dreaming quite a lot, but then the other the other um, song that is repeated in the sec- particularly in the second half is uh, Dreams by the Cranberries. Um, but it's a it's it's a cover version of Dreams by the Cranberries by Fei Wong, who is the actor playing Fei in in the film. So we get this, so which again for me layers in this kind of diegetic level of dreaminess within the film as well. It gives Fei, uh, particularly in the second half, it gives Fei this sort of almost elevated presence where she she's there on screen, but you can also hear her singing. And also, Fei Wong was an extremely, and still is, extremely famous pop starlet person at the time who was a, a singer at the time. So putting her in that role was probably a very deliberate piece of casting by uh, Wong Kar Wai. And also calling her character Fei as well. So there's a levels of doubling going on there with her, particularly. And for me, yeah, that's what it, it sort of, um, yeah, it kind of adds to this sort of dreamy quality of the film. And there's something... The thing about dreams, when you really think about dreams properly, there's something quite strange, unnerving, and almost quite lonely thing about dreams. Especially when you when you've you've had a dream, you wake up and it's not real. There's something there's some weird sort of disconnect from it that that is bittersweet, but also longing and lonely. And it, and this film really captures that for me. And I think, and there's something about being able to just pinpoint those particular those four particular characters five i suppose if you include the kind of um the flight attendant from the second half of the film um being able to pick those those particular five people out from that crowd and as you say lillian then sort of universalize them with the stories of their their chance encounter relationships um yeah it all for me adds it adds up to a kind of dreamlike quality that that, that i think the doubling adds into as well. I didn't realise that um, Faye Wong um, uh, sang that cover song either. Um, I wonder if that that sort of um, brings up sort of um, themes of like performance, like uh, thinking of like another double, there's the, the woman in the blonde wig, but then there's the guy at the bar that gets another woman to wear the blonde wig. Um, and, yeah, it, I don't know, it, it, something about how they're not quite masking, but performing roles. Um, I mean, then there's the, the air stewards and the policemen wearing uniforms. Um, and it, may, it, it kind of makes me think about how um, the character of Faye um she sort she she tries to um she tries to show her affection towards towards the um policeman sorry i've forgotten the number again um <laughs> um but um she does that through certain roles like um caring for him and and sort of tidying up his flat and and giving him gifts and then maybe even like something about uh, you know the trope of the the manic pixie dream girl. You know, is is that is that part of the performance? Like, uh, I don't know. Can you say a bit more about the manic pixie dream girl? Um, 
I'm not sure really. It's um, the character that comes to mind is um, Natalie Portman in, in Garden State. Is, is that what it's called? Um, it's kind of like a, a a straight guy's wildest dream, like a, a a girl that's kind of like quirky and cute and innocent, and um, but also, you know, mysterious and has kind of like a depth to them and and yeah so i, I think it, it comes up a lot in sort of romantic comedies and stuff um but i did kind of feel a bit irritated by the second story and i just wish they'd talk to each other at some points like I, I think i did i preferred the first narrative um and i i although i do, I do agree that it, it was good it you know it wasn't an endless cycle of um different encounters i i did kind of hope we'd go back to the first story at one uh, and at some point i'm glad you brought up the manic pixie dream girl because i I'd n- noted it down as well I, i'm glad you said it John James. <laughs> um, yeah because i read somewhere today that like Faye is almost like one of the earliest versions of the manic pixie dream girl or became like a template for it um but the the thing were i've lost now where whatever it was i was reading i think it was a blog post but they were saying that they didn't necessarily think that she was but that the other people that have come after her have been sort of this trope has been grown especially through the late 90s and the 2000s through rom-coms of these kind of slightly fairy like fae kind of um girl who's sweet and innocent and desirable but i think what's different about Faye, and even thinking about her from this autism point of view sort of rounds her character a little more you can really see some of her tiny little details i think and some of her um some of the little performance beats that she does she's really enigmatic to watch i think on screen Faye wong and the character is really um intriguing and i think in the early scenes when we first see her um especially when she's dancing around to the to to California dreaming and the fact that it's very loud and she doesn't want to turn it down and she does things like moving the fan into her face and they're sort of looking longingly at the cop and stuff like that there were just little notes in there that I thought she's not just a character type here she is quite a fully well-rounded figure herself um and is therefore uh uh, you know, there's there's a complexity to her, I think. Um, yeah, and I really liked her in that in that respect. Yeah, it's it's really interesting you talking about that trope, um, which you know we 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 apply as you say to sort of rom coms and sort of teenage romantic movies later on, and I suppose to some extent, Faye is the way she appears and at the moment she appears can almost seem sort of fantastical. I mean, there's a magic realist quality to the whole, to the whole film, which sort of grounds it in a literary tradition. So, you know, uh, writers like Gail Garcia Marquez could, could also be accused of sort of putting manic pixie dream girls in their writing, these sort of, or, or indeed many male writers, (laughs) you often get these sorts of, these women who sort of show up, uh, a moment of crisis and sort of are everything that they desire. Um, but it's also interesting thinking about that in terms of autism and masking and certainly in terms of sort of the emulation that um, a lot of women and and, and particularly um, young girls when they're sort of 
when they are masking um, and emulating, it's interesting that Faye sort of does that with the um, with Cop 663's ex um, girlfriend by sort of being becoming an air stewardess and sort of almost mirroring her behavior. And she has an interest in sort of how other people, how other women behave and how they look. There's the, um, I think perhaps one of the most striking moments in the film for me is when she's sort of touching one of the waitresses hair, um, at the cafe where, um, cop 663 goes every day. And she's sort of saying, asking questions about how she grows her hair and how beautiful it is. And this woman is, slightly perturbed by this and sort of like mind your own business um and in the same way that that's sort of what um Bridget Lynn's character is doing with the sort of wig and the glasses and the smoking sobranes that she's sort of she's emulating a sort of classical Hollywood blonde type type figure um which of course I mean the, the there's been stuff sort of um, discussed of, of sort of placing Manny Pixie Dream Girl really in sort of like the screwball films of, of, of the 1940s and 1930s and um, uh, um, Catherine Hepburn in Bringing Up Baby is often cited as sort of one of the early earliest examples and there is a limit of course to which that term can sort of apply but the idea of it and the essence of it as sort of um, a woman who sort of typifies a man's fantasy of what a woman or what a girl would be like. Um, there is an extent to which I feel that both of these women are sort of trying to to emulate that um, because they're almost convincing themselves that that's how women are supposed to be perceived and how they're supposed to behave. Um, that's certainly something that I've sort of experienced in in terms of how sort of you feel like you have to sort of mirror how other women are being portrayed to you um and actually that can often lead to not being able to achieve a certain standard of of perfection that that sort of these two women sort of seem to be trying to achieve i think perhaps bridget lynn's character more than the other i don't, I don't know what you make of that yeah, I think that's that's interesting. Thinking about the what what they're trying to achieve and and, and whether they succeed, and, and and also John James's comments about performativity. It as, as you were both speaking, I was I was thinking about um, well, I was, one thing I was thinking was I'm I'm really pleased that um, it does the film doesn't close with you know, the cop getting the girl, she she flies off again. So she's sort of constantly in flight from him in a way that I don't think is just about the kind of the feyness of her, but is is actually about her, a level of, um, uh, a, a kind of distance that she maintains from people. That's, that's who she is. Um, but there is also something in this about what, a question about what her desire is because she's she does put herself in the place of the other woman and we see at one point that she sort of you know literally stands next to the the, the, the stewardess who comes back and and you know she there's her competitiveness with her her jealousy but she also becomes her and there's something about that 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 kind of hovers somewhere for me around the the indistinction of of desire for someone and wanting to be them you know and I think that 
I think that heteronormative ideas of, of sexuality try to separate those things out, you know, that the Oedipal complex set, sets us in one direction. You, you know, you, 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 both children have to give up the mother as a love object and, you know, identify with the mother as a girl or um, identify with the father as a boy and so on. And we get that, that, that axis appearing. And this film seems to sort of do away with that and it, it seems to liberate a sense of of where identification and desire might actually um, not be clear. You know, who, who is her desire for? We're not, we're not really shown. We know that she has this, this distant um, feeling um, and admiration and desire to care for the cop. But when it comes to actually meeting, when it comes to the opportunity, she, she disappears. She doesn't take it. So, yeah, it seems quite, it seems quite cloudy, and it seems to sustain that cloudiness around the romance for me. And that, that's got quite a big part of its appeal. Then, of course, like when she comes back at the end um, and she's now fully dressed as the kind of flight attendant and she walks back into the Midnight Express takeaway, where, which has now been taken over by the cop who has presumably stopped being a cop and is now going to open, you know, it's redecorating this shop and he's playing California Dreaming and she walks in and he asks her how California was and she says oh it was alright <laughs> so there's a sense of like she's got this image in her head of maybe a little bit of this dreaminess of what, what things could be about the cop, about the his ex-girlfriend, the flight attendant about being a flight attendant and about California all of which never really matches up to what she's perhaps expected or is hoping for, but also in a way that doesn't really seem to matter all that much to her. Like she's sort of, she's more about the, the kind of experience of experiencing the things rather than claiming them or, or, or having them necessarily. And you get this, I sort of get the sense at the end of the film that she probably won't remain as a flight attendant for particularly long. She'll probably drift off and move on to something else. I, I don't get the sense that she stays with the cop as a you know a, a dutiful girlfriend or anything. She's got that kind of transient sort of quality to her, um, where she seems perfectly happy to sort of drift from thing to thing, which is, as you say, quite refreshing. And then, and so that sort of relates to one of the other things that I wanted to note about the film that I really like. Um, and this is a it's kind of reflection and it's sort of visual capturing of. Um, of time and, and of of how it sort of deals with time and and sort of looks at time as a concept. One of the things I always love about this film, the shot, there's particular shots that I love. I love are those moments where Wong Kar Wai decides to stop everything, and there's those see, those those kind of shots that are. And I was looking at how the technically he does he did this. It's a term called undercranking and um, print. Oh, I wrote it down. Where's it gone? Um, under cr cranking and step printing. So this is where they, it's, it sort of um, changes the film speed. So it does a sort of slower film speed in order to speed up the imagery that's going on. So the pe people on screen are blurring past. But then step prints back onto the film the, what was shot so that you then get this, these simultaneous shots of a person doing something in great slow motion so it's one of the cops just drinking a, a coffee that he has or he's putting a coin into a into the karaoke machine into the music machine whilst all the other action is very blurrily passing by and they're incredible shots like i just think that they're, they're absolutely beautiful moments of cinema but i was interested in what people thought about 
um, what's the reflection there on on time? Because one of the things I found really interested in researching autism and researching disability more generally is that there's a maybe a sense that disabled people, autistic people, have in some respects a kind of different or neurodivergent sense, not sense, but neurodivergent experience of time. I, I, there's, there's this thing called crip time, which is the kind of experience that dis disabled people have of, of time that is different to the neuronormative uh, ways of um, experiencing timescales and time frames. And it struck me that this was a visual, perhaps a visual representation of something along those lines, potentially. I mean... Yeah, those those moments are so so evocative, as you say. And and the other film where sort of Christopher Doyle does that a lot in the cinematography is in Fallen Angels as well. Um, I don't know if I necessarily sort of thought of it in a in a sense of of time, but certainly as a visual representation of sort of busyness and noise and sort of urbanity around what's going on um of how sort of stuff outside of ourselves can sometimes feel sort of crazy like those those moments have a real sort of give a real sense of like pinpointing something within a busy landscape um and i think i think you're right about about how how time passes um differently i think that by sort of contrast to those shots, you have the scenes with with Faye in the apartment, which are quite languorous and quite, you know, we we a lot of time, cinematic time is given to those those rituals and those activities of how neurodivergent people will become sort of, will sort of lose sense of time when they're sort of engaging in those sorts of activities and and the focus that they require and the sort of not obsessiveness but certainly the interest taken in them um whereas everything can then feel very sped up when there's lots of people around and sudden um so maybe there is a certain maybe that's the distinction that's being drawn is that you don't want to sort of show those two types of events in exactly the same way and I think that's what's so so striking about that cinematography. Yeah, I I think there's another there's another version of that sort of slowing down sense um in the film when Fei Wong is in the apartment and cleaning it and the the cop goes by on the the walking the walkway which is an es moving escalator. And that features in reverse a bit later on in the film when it's her on on the escalator, and that's I think it's one of the the films the images that's used to publicise the film. But there's a sense in which people moving along outside the apartment it 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 seems strange. It seems as though you know there's that people are being moved along in time whilst time is sort of stopping still somewhere else. Um, it's that same disjunction, and I think the film has a a sense of time as as differently textured and. And for me, that gets away from this idea of uniform time, a sort of universal reality that we all share. The film sort of gives us, you know, moments and textures and moods um, that break break up that idea that there's a consensual reality, there's a consensual way of experiencing the world that we're all going to agree on. And and I think for me, that's you know, that's a big part of the appeal of Wong Kar Wai that. It, that he 
kind of allows us to to move into quite idiosyncratic spaces in the film and doesn't bring them all all back to to a neat ending i think the um the sort of the the manipulation or play, playing about with time it sort of ties into this um feeling that you mentioned david that it was that the 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 film is like a dream um because like in dreams, all sorts of weird things happen. Like, and um, there were points in the film where I didn't, I didn't quite know how much time had passed and and stuff. Um, and uh, I guess the 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 feeling of transience that you mentioned as well. Um, you know, the the city and everyone everyone passing each other and these fleeting encounter encounters. And maybe that sort of ties into how I felt about the first story like it it was over too soon and then you know what happens well they've gone their separate ways and the I've you know the dream's over um we don't see them again and in in a way that kind of happens in in the in the second narrative as well it's it's left unfinished which is nice um i wonder if it also ties into um the idea of it um being a film like um, it's very film-like to sort of, you know, play about with time and and um, play about with the narrative. It's not it's not how we generally experience day-to-day life. Um, and, and the fact the fact that both the guys are, are cops, I think, in that that same interview, I think it was in Sight and Sound magazine that I mentioned earlier. Um, uh, the the interviewer asked Wonka why you know what why why are they both cops and he said uh, he wanted to emulate sort of act, uh, Hong Kong action film so you know there's there's this sort of like not falseness but I, I guess it's performance again and you know like yeah um, also the the idea of the the apartment sort of standing still while the city moves past kind of it um it's very much how like well, when when you start dating someone and you fall in love like that becomes your whole world and 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 time does move differently for you two than for everyone else you know everyone else is just going about their day you kind of feel like you're in a film and and time does dilate in a way and i think one of the just Made just sort of re- reminded me that when you were talking there, John James, um, about about what Wong Kar Wai says about why he has included two cops in this film because there is a sense as well that he's sort of trying to overlay a few different genres here in this film as well. How I mean, we talked about it being dreamlike and <clears throat> almost kind of fantastical, but is there's the, obviously there's the romance. It's also quite a funny film. There's lots of quite comedic lines that are spoken, especially in the voiceovers. Um, but there is, you know, this this first the first story in particular, the the woman in the in the blonde wig, is she seems to be straight out of a film noir or out of a sort of a thriller of some kind, you know, she's a drug runner, um, and she's trying to keep control of these these people who are going to be smuggling drugs across the border. She loses them, she's running around panicked about it, and then at the end of her story, she 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 actually you know goes to the 
the drug pusher, I think, at the, the bottoms up bar and shoots him. So there is a, and, and actually she is also one of the kind of um, promotional uh, images. I, I'm just looking now at my DVD version of this um, of this film, and it's it's her on the front pointing a gun. And actually, as a matter of fact, you know, it's not a thriller. It's not really an action thriller. There isn't many. There's not many shootings or guns in it. But that that this DVD cover seems to suggest that that, that is what it's going to be. So there's an interesting blending and playfulness with with genre going on here. Maybe an even postmodern approach to genre. Um, throwing things together. One of the things I read today was how um, I think this comes up a lot with this film is how it feels almost like it's kind of at the MTV moment. It's got a kind of music video feel to it. It's got that energy, that freneticness, that fast cutting, the people running around, cool imagery, and sort of tied in with you know very poppy music. Um, so there's a lot. That, I don't know for for such a kind of in some ways quite a sweet and simple film there's a lot going on there in terms of the crossing over and the blending and then maybe that's just a reflection of the 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 state of the hong kong at the time and um the energy that is vibrant down in these streets and the different types of people that that are there and and that cross paths all the time Uh, but i did think that that was one of the things that was quite interesting about this film it almost seems like it's going to be a thriller and then it the first half of it, there's a lot of people running around, the cops running around, tackling people. There's a lot going on, and it glides into this much more of a kind of rom-com feel, particularly in the second half. Um, and yeah, that was one of the things I thought was really interesting about, and always find interesting about this film. Yeah, I completely completely agree with you about that. It has got it, it's almost kind of slightly trashy aesthetic in terms of the first story with the wig and the the one with the gun and you think oh yeah what's what's where's this going to go it's going to be loads of killings and blood and um but it 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 diverts from that um but i think it's i think it is a film that plays with genre and it's also a play a, a film that plays with with things and their meaning and i'm remembering actually when when this film um came out that in the wake of the film, there was a lot of discussion about its representation of Hong Kong in the moment before the handover of the, the governorship to, to China. And, and maybe, that's, maybe there's something about the celebration of goods in the film that has some relationship to that, I don't know. Um, I think it's, it's very evocative of a very particular part of Hong Kong uh, that I was lucky enough to go and visit after, after I saw this film. And I can see the specialness of that that extended mid-level escalator world, which apparently is the longest section of, of covered escalator in the world. Um, but also it's, it's, it's got that sort of, there's loads of logos, it's got that MTV feel, it's a very sort of Western feel. And whether that was part of a kind of melancholy of what might happen to Hong Kong um, post handover, I don't know. But I do remember that was some of the, the reading that was attached to it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think that you know, as you say, as you quite accurately say, Hong Kong's going through this very sort of transitional period, and I think that Wong Kar Wai, as a filmmaker, is also going through that. I mean, this is only what his third film, um, and I don't know if you've seen Days of Being Wild in particular, but that's perhaps like the most sort of thriller-like sort of. Um, gangster sort of Shaw Brothers type um, film that 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 he, that he makes. And in the same year as Chunking Express, he makes Sashes of Time, which is sort of a Wucha film, um, which is also 
very non-linear and very sort of messy, really. This is this is very much sort of the superior of the two films he makes in 1994. Um, and then moving towards those sort of more romantic films that we see in the second half of Chunking Express with things like Happy Together and The Mood for Love. I mean, I say romantic in sort of a, tr- in a, in a tragic romantic sense rather than in a sort of... Uh, you know, Richard Curtis vein to, to go back to him. Um, but um, I, th- I think you're right that, the, that it is a film of sort of two halves. And before I saw it, I was sort of vaguely aware of the film and I'd seen clips and things and, and images. And you, I, did, I had no idea what sort of film it was going to be because you do get these sort of two sides to its presentation as being sort of, is it a, a sort of drug smuggling thriller or or is it a sort of sweet neuroqueer romance? And the answer is, of course, that it's it's sort of both, um, which, which blends so perfectly. Um, and I love both halves equally, but for quite different reasons, I think. Um, you, you can't say that the, the that both halves are sort of doing exactly the same thing because um, we, were, we were talking about doubling and yes it's there but also they are so different um, generically I think yeah I think that's a, that's a really lovely observation to, to close on um, uh, yeah for people who are listening to this who have never seen Chunking Express I think we would all very enthusiastically say go and watch Chunking Express it's just such a wonderful film um, so yeah thank you very much all of you um, so thanks to Janet and to John James and to Lillian uh, and I've been David uh, I hope you enjoyed this recording we'll be back uh, again in another in a couple of weeks time for a uh, for another episode um, but until then goodbye You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London and the Wellcome Trust. Thanks also to Leverett Jakes for supporting us with their unfailingly excellent editing skills. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. The Autism Through Cinema podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema. If you'd like to contribute to the discussion of the films we talk about, or if you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email us at cinemaautism at gmail.com. That's cinema autism with a shared A in the middle of the word. We'll be back again in two weeks' time with another slice of neurodivergent cinematics. Bye for now.